Ah, hey, Peter. How you doing, man? I am not looking forward to doing this move, and uh, it is just a stark cloud looming over my head. And I'm doing the cabbage soup diet because I need to quit being a fat ass, so I've been real cranky. Oh, shit, dude. I'm sorry about that on both counts. I kind of took a break from my diet. We went on vacation, the road trip to Washington, D.C., Stevie and I did, and uh, uh, it was pretty good. Aside from the drive back, drive back was a little strange. Uh, a lot of bad weather, drove through a lot, through like a lot of mist clouds. And like Ravenloft. Storms. Yeah, it had a had a real creepy vibe to it. Kind of like kind of hurt my head doing through the elevation, I think. But uh, we got through okay, you know. So I can't complain too much. Happy to be back, you know. So uh, you you up for recording this? I kind of wanted to have you start with the uh, the intro this time. Maybe you could like screw it up again in some comedic way, and I can jump on your case, something like that. What are you thinking? Well, I don't know. What what are your thoughts? Like, what do you think would be funny here? Like a like a hateful voyage. I mean, I, I don't know. What are you thinking? What do you mean? Like, so we usually go with, uh, you know, this is Vija, please, a hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. I know Quadrant. how it goes. I mean, I've been doing it for 27 weeks. It's, a, it's an excellent voyage to the Delta Quadrant. You want to go with like excellent journey instead just for laughs? Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. What, what's the intro for our show? Vija, please, an excellent voyage through the Delta Quadrant. No, wait, no, 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 no. It's it's a hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. We make fun of the fact the show is garbage most of the time. What? Yeah, and I do the intro. Uh, I've done the intro every time for the past 27 weeks. And what do you, the show is garbage. What? We've, we've had episodes with, you know, C plots and holodeck malfunctions and weird energy babies stealing people's souls and all kinds of just bullshit. You've been drinking tonight? No, I'm sober, dude. Where, where, where is this coming from, Joe? Every one of these episodes has been fucking excellent. Why would we waste our time watching a shit show? Wait, you feeling all right? Wait, wait, wait a second. Are you saying that every episode of Voyager that we've watched has been good? Uh, the best. It's not that fucking trash like Next Gen was. I mean, Voyager's what pulled the whole Star Trek franchise out of the garbage. We've had this conversation before. Uh, God, no, no, Peter, Peter, I realize what might have happened. When we was driving through the Pennsylvania countryside, I I think I might have accidentally fallen into a, a parallel universe. Well, that explains it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, in my in my universe, Voyager is a show that is like ninety percent crap with like ten percent diamonds in the rough that sometimes get pulled oh, out. Joe, yeah, that sounds awful. I feel so sorry for you. I don't know where my Joe is. Hopefully, he's all right, but. Uh, where you came from sounds awful. This is a great place, and you are free to stick around here as long as you would like. You know, I think what probably happened is one of those mirror-mirror situations where we're both traveling through the same place at the same time. So now the other version of me is probably like, you know, time-shifted into the universe where Voyager is terrible. He's going to be pissed. Oh, probably. I mean, I know what that world was like. And it was week after week of punishment direct to my balls. And to be free of that and to watch a quality show week after week, man, that's going to be a real improvement in my life. I think I'm going to leave that version of me there. And uh, I'm just going to take this for a ride, man. That's a good that's a good plan. I mean, assuming you're not like evil mirror universe, Joe, and you didn't like kill my Joe, uh, you know, we'd be more than happy to help you. You want to bang this podcast out with me? Nothing could bring me more pleasure, Peter. Welcome back, alternate reality cast and and listeners, uh, to V'ger, please. An excellent voyage through the Delta Quadrant. I'm your host, Peter. I'm your co-host, Joseph. I know it can't last. Nothing gold can stay, Pony Boy. While it while it's here with us, I'm really digging this quality Voyager shit that we are seeing. This is great. Three in a row. This has been three excellent episodes of Star Trek, to say the least, and maybe even good episodes of TV in general. When I watched this episode, I I truly doubted myself, my own sanity. You know, was I going crazy or did Voyager somehow manage for three full episodes in a row to produce good TV? Uh, And the answer is yes. 
it wasn't a perfect outing this time around. I think of the three hits we've seen, I would consider this the weakest overall, but yet still had some of the best moments in it. But uh, fuck it. I'll take it. This is this was a delight. I really wish the show could continue to be this good. And it's really sad to me that I know that it isn't. Please don't say these things, Joe, because I don't think I could go back to that dark, stinky closet (laughs) of season one and season two that we've been living in for so long. No, this was just this was good, dramatic television. And I, I I loved every second of it. I would like for our brand not to just be hate and poop, but, you know, real talk. I think we're two real nerds, and I think that we can both uh, recognize excellence as long as well as point out glaring failure. And again, you know, I'm, I'm happy to give credit where credit's due. We've had some conversations on the Facebook group about Cass, uh, in particular, who I think most people remember as being a shitty character and something bad, and that's why they drummed her off the show in favor of Seven of Nine. And you know, going back in myself particularly for the first time viewer she's good man she's solid she's one of the best parts of the show and and the show does have its good spots and this is certainly one of them so season two episode 12 resistance i know that your brand peter is to to linger on that first shot i would like to do that lingering this week in in this parallel universe setup that we have here because my Fucking God. Helix <laughs> has the greatest fucking coat on the planet on there. That coat is amazing. It is this ankle length fur job. It looks like he just skinned the most ugly cat in the universe and threw it on him like a dominance maneuver. It is amazing. And I have this question for you, Peter. Is that something that he replicated so that he looks like a skeevy interstellar drug dealer? Or did they say, hey, man, we need you to be our skeevy interstellar drug dealer. And he's like, hold on. I got something for that in my fucking trash heap shuttle. Give me like 10 minutes. You just nailed all of the nails on the head. I started off calling this pimp coat Neelix. (laughs) But... Your drug dealer comment, as soon as you said it, man, this is like New Jack City Neelix. This is New Jack Neelix. And New Jack Neelix is not your not your parents Neelix, right? He is cranky the whole episode through. I think that anybody who's watching the show realistically or you know, on a regular basis should be looking at this guy and saying, this dude's a ringer. This is some sort of body double plant that is not the real neelix because he is just sour he is doubting everything he's super hostile with all the alien races and it's this coat new jack neelix is wearing the coat is so good they have him in this coat the entire episode even after they get off the planet (laughs) and they're back up on the ship yes he's in like senior staff briefings still rocking new jack neelix coat love it (laughs) It's just, he just he just loved it so much. He he about told the antagonist in this episode while they're in the briefing room to sit his five dollar ass down before he made change. I mean, he is he is feeling it in this thing. Like I love it. I love how terrible this code is. Well, and like, it transforms him as a man. Oh yeah, when he's back up in the galley prepping lunch. All the other uh, people they've got in there, like helping them with lunch duty, he's making them all like naked, standing there cutting carrots <laughs> and onions so nobody can smuggle food back out. New Jack Neelix is all business. And the rest of the crew is in their 24th century by way of mid-90s fashion best on this planet. And they are clearly doing some kind of covert deal. With someone there, they're they're doing the natural. I don't want to be suspicious, so I'm going to continue to look over my shoulder and check corners to see if I'm being noticed because that is something that normal people do, and not totally something that gives away that I might be doing something I don't want people to notice. Here's the the, the full scene, right? <clears throat> because this is actually a really good scene, and one of the biggest criticisms I have about TV Trek is that nothing ever really seems alien about a situation. You're in this open air market. You got new Jack Neelix, who's taking care of some business and you see some of the other bridge crew, which is one of my biggest complaints about this episode spurs through this open air market, 
do like just like what you said, shady stuff. And then you've got the aliens. And it's not just, you know, your alien of the week with a little bit of shit on their face. There's there's some pretty wild looking aliens. There's a very diverse population in this marketplace and everybody's going about their business. And I think they build a really good atmosphere very quickly in this episode that it's, uh, I don't know, kind of a refugee feel and that there's something wrong with this place. They don't explain anything really about who these people are in any kind of context. We get the basics, and but we don't know, like, it's there's multiple races on this planet. Yeah. So is this like a social order or like none of that's really explained. Part of me thought that that was a bit of a miss, like a little bit of context would help. Part of me liked it because it kept the mystery as to what the fuck was going on. Like they wouldn't know as we find out on this on this uh surface of this uh, planet doing this fucking dirty deal because they're in a real dire straits with a, with a, a MacGuffin technology substance that they desperately need. And so they've used Neelix's shady connections to find someone that has it there and get the deal done because the government's too xenophobic and aggressive to, to deal with them, particularly when they would be in a position of weakness. So, that's why they're there and that's why they're doing it. And they, you don't get a, any of that context I just provided. You kind of have to figure it out for yourself. I want to touch on that. I think it's excellent. I think one of the biggest problems with Trek is that they over-explain things and their explanations are always watered down or weak or ill thought out or they're just too family friendly or whatever. And I think by putting the pieces on the table and letting you kind of draw your own conclusions, like this planet, this this open air market, it kind of had like a half-life to occupied earth post combine feel to it to me and maybe that's not what the writers want at all but they didn't they didn't say it wasn't you know they didn't say hey it's actually thing a they're just like here it is and i'm like oh shit this looks like it's thing z and there's nothing there to tell me peter you're wrong i like that i like being able to flesh things out with my own head canon and i think it put a lot of depth into this entire episode because of that I think that you're mostly right. I think just a little bit of explanation as to like who the Mokra are. I think it would have helped just put some of it in context. I agree, though, that it was refreshing that we didn't get over explained. And this was a lot of you kind of have to figure out for yourself. I think that if they were going to go that route, then maybe reflecting that more in the story would have helped because really none of the characters give a shit about like any of this stuff. It's just for the viewer to give a shit about. Like the the main characters are all like, oh, we're just bad. I got a MacGuffin. Then we're going to break out of jail. We're going to get the fuck out of here. We don't care about who any of you people are. We don't care about fucking your shit up. So I don't know. That that was the only real complaint I had with the episode was that they're, they could have recalibrated that a little bit, give us a little bit of information or at least taken sort of to use the, the LARP expression, take it all more IC with the main characters that they don't know what the fuck is going on. They didn't do either of those things. So eh. But I I do agree with you that if I had to choose over between that and over explaining it, I would take what we got 10 times out of 10. The occupation thing is also a cool angle to me. And it's something I'd like to see more of like in Jatrell. I I forget what the alien species that uh, nuked Neelix's. Harkonnen? Was it Harkonnen? Yeah. You know, I I think that's cool seeing, hey, we were an invasive force and now we're in charge of your planet and, and I think it adds more to instead of subjugating your own people and maybe they don't do it because it was so heavy with the Cardassians and the Bajorans that they wanted to shy away from it a little bit in Voyager. But I think it's a nice, diverse set piece to use in the Delta Quadrant just to show variation. But so the Mokra, right? I'm going to tell you right now who the Mokra are, and they are your run of the mill generic BDSM cops. You got a little taste of it in the 37s, but... You got new Jack Neelix, and it literally looks like a drug deal, right? He, they're in this this open air market. He's got a vial of what looks to be like yellow cocaine. <laughs> Janeway <laughs> appears to be fiending. She's like, I don't care what they want for it. Just pay. We need it. It's critical. Neelix goes off to do his thing, and then boom, drug bust, right? It's a, it's a drug deal gone wrong. These bondage cops show up in their skin-tight gimp suits and motorcycle helmets. And they start waving these pistols around, which you might recognize as the uh, pistols from the Candy Corn Tragedy. (laughs) 
Well, they looked like the bad guys from the movie Equilibrium. Did you ever see that? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. All those guys had leather, like leather jackets and biker helmets. That was the most low rent bullshit I have ever seen in a movie released in theaters, starring Christian Bale. That's what these guys reminded me of. It was a little less skin tight BDSM, more more Equilibrium bad guys. But these dudes crash the party and. We're, we're talking about maybe six, seven or ten seconds worth of, you know, into the episode before these guys show up. Shit goes down, man. Tuvok's got his phaser out. He's open firing. And I mean, the Starfleet's exchanging shots with these cops. People are getting dinged. Guys are going down. Janeway fucking nails her dude like with three solid blows and like an elbow across the face. Like everyone's pretty effective in this fight. It's it's uh it's probably one of the better fight scenes we've seen in the show. Yeah. And you know what's going to happen at this point, kind of, especially with the intro from Netflix. I keep coming back to, to Star Trek Elite Forces. Where is the Starfleet po- protocol? Why is it not Chakotay down here? Why do you have your chief engineer, your chief of security, the captain? You know, Neelix, I would say maybe two of those people at the most should be down on the planet. The rest should be fucking disposable red shirts. Yeah, I mean, it is crazy. You are right. And given the context of the situation that we're about to find out, what makes sense to me would be that uh, Balana is down there because she's the uh, chief engineer. So she's trying to make sure the shit's legit. Tuvok is the security officer trying to arrange the deal. And then that should be it for your senior staff. Then you got a couple fucking mooks that go down with as backup, as muscle to make sure the deal happens. And then, of course, you have new Jack Neelix to actually (laughs) make the deal. Like the captain should not be there, but whatever. Like, it, you know what? Again, it's Star Trek. If you don't put your main characters in in harm's way, then nothing interesting happens to them. Then you're out of genre. Yeah. But uh, of course, things do not go the right way. Uh, Shit goes down. People get tagged. Once again, the comm badge falls off the, the important person for that episode. I'm telling you, just get the doctor, man. Cut open the stomach. Jam that comm badge in there. So many problems fixed in the Delta Quadrant. But they don't. The Velcro fails. It gets ripped off. Janeway gets uh, whisked away and everybody else beams out. It should be pointed out that Janeway gets winged by one of Equilibrium villains and is about to get captured herself when suddenly out of nowhere, some dude just bum rushes that guy, knocks him out, and takes Janeway away. So uh, Tuvok and Balada have been captured. Uh, New Jack Neelix is off screen. He's not involved. And Janeway has been taken away by a third party. That's where things stand. I like that the next scene, we get a pretty good full download. Ships fucked up because they don't have uh, Tellarium, which makes the antimatter reaction in the warp core work. If they don't get it real fucking soon, basically they're going to be completely hosed because they won't be able to restart their antimatter reaction. So that's why they've risked this, that this is a life or death situation for the ship. And so unless this works and they get this stuff, they're dead in the water. That's all you need to know to know why, like, they've risked going to this planet where they're obviously not wanted, potentially breaking a whole lot of rules so they can make this shit work because that's how bad the situation is. They cut up and it's Chakotay talking to Kim in engineering and it starts off with a nice shot of the warp core, which is like if the warp core is usually like do, 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 this core is like do, do, do. Did you ever uh, watch Knight Rider? Of course. So you had Kit, which was the good firebird, and then there was like the prototype car, which was the evil green one. Yes. Yeah, like if the normal warp core is Kit, like this warp core is like slow humming like car. It's pretty menacing. And here's what I appreciate the most about this entire episode. They've got the big problem that set up the entire situation. Chakotay gets word in engineering that uh, Neelix has radioed that they're ready to beam up and that, you know, there's been a problem. Beams New Jack Neelix right into engineering. New Jack Neelix produces the crack rock. He does. Kim goes over in the corner and analyzes it with uh, an engineering crew, one of which I guess was a contest winner. Some guy won a contest and he got to be the dude leaning over Kim's shoulder. Um, Says, hey, it's good to go. They plug it in. Uh, There's a little, there's three seconds worth of suspense as, you know, is this going to work or not? It works. The engines are back online. Voyager is safe. And now we have taken this like 
big tech MacGuffin that they used to drag through entire episodes and wash their hands of it. And now you get to switch over to the human element, which is where the fuck's the rest of the crew knew Jack Neelix. What happened? Yes. And he explains, like, I wasn't fucking there. Uh, I was doing the fucking deal to get the crack rock that makes the engine go. And (laughs) I'm pretty sure it wasn't my contact who fucked us because, quite frankly, I wouldn't have escaped with my crack rock. If that's what the deal was. So something else happened. Chicote goes back to the bridge and tells Tom Paris, hey, we've got dudes who got captured down there. We're going to have to we're gonna have to make ourselves to these people so that we can negotiate. So they creep up over the edge of the planet. They get spotted. And the antagonist of the episode, who's uh, August, Augris, I think it's Augris, yeah. uh, <clears throat> makes himself known to him immediately. And new Jack Neelix is telling him. Dude is going to come out with his gats. They're going to just start shooting at us. These motherfuckers are hardcore. We got to be ready. We got to be ready to throw down with them. He's very like, we got to fight. Let's fight. New Jack Neelix is the best. Uh, But the guy was really uh, conversational, at least approachable and saying, oh, you must not have gotten our protocols if you beam down. I'll send you I'll send you a copy of all of them and then we can we can uh, see if your dudes have been uh, detained and, and talk about dealing with that. So it puts everyone on edge because uh, Agris uh, is not outwardly aggressive towards them, which is what new Jack Neelix had them all pumped up thinking was going to go down. We got two things I want to I want to go at here. First of all, so Voyager has been hiding from this planet's super crazy sensor grid, right? This, you know, we, we've got a fascist state, the Mokra, the bondage cops, they got shit on lockdown and they're as we'll later come to find out the or, oh, I'm sorry, the planet's covered by satellites that exceed anything the Starfleet technology has ever seen before. So these guys are legit. And to hide from the sensor net, they've been behind the moon. And this was like the crazy part of the episode for me. All the problems that they've had with like transporters and all their stuff. You're telling me that Voyager had an entire moon between it and the landing party site. And it's been able to just teleport people through the fucking moon. Um, and two, this Augris guy, I want to tell you something that might change your perception of him forever. Okay. Should I save it to the end or you want to hear it now? No, say it now. What if I told you that the actor of Augris is out of character married to the actress of Lursa? I would say that that makes a tremendous amount of sense. That was crazy. I read that. I was like, wow. <laughs> How did he get this job? This guy, and I can't remember his name. I'm, I apologize. He's been a Romulan twice in like next gen once in deep space. Nine. I think like this, this is one of those like cool reuse dudes and he holds down his scenes pretty well. But like, how crazy is it that when you're like both reoccurring characters or, you know, reoccurring actors at the very least on Star Trek and then you marry another reoccurring actor. I just looked up who he was, Alan Scarf, I believe. He was Admiral Mendak in Data's Day, who was the Romulan admiral who received the traitor at the end. And yeah, the the coincidence of two Star Trek actors getting to or two actors getting together who both wind up in Star Trek does seem a little odd. But I guess, you know, Hollywood's all about those connections, you know, if one person makes it on the other person you know, that's in the same business can probably have more opportunity, particularly since uh, his his wife is a recurring villain on multiple shows and in a movie. And it makes a degree of sense to me that that kind of hookup would happen. But it's uh, Voyager has that going, too. At this time, Roxana Dawson was actually married to Casey Biggs, who played Damar on DS9. It was one of those reoccurring characters that was very important. So let me give you my headcanon on how this went down, this marriage. There they both are at a Star Trek convention after hours and bar fleets pouring up warp core breaches. Okay, I like it. Fade to black. Fade to black. Fade to black. It's just that's how the hookup happened. I like it. Mm -hmm. I like it. But yeah, so this dude, uh, Augris, who is supposed to just be this warmonger, according to new Jack Neelix, Fakes him out hard. Chakotay doesn't have a clear line on this guy. He can't just go in guns blazing. Not that Chakotay ever would. But they got this conundrum. You know, Mokra are playing nice enough that Voyager can't just cowboy in there. 
at the same time, they know that their people are being detained and probably being tortured. We cut next to Balana and Tuvok in the pokey. They have, again, the most 90s outfits I've ever seen, particularly Balana rocking this kind of vest boots combo that it just looks like she could be an, a background extra in an in sync video. I mean, it's not it's not good. They they have a conversation about, you know, their current situation and and overall their dialogue throughout the the scenes that they had put uh, Tuvok and Bolana through in this episode are actually pretty effective. Um, this is pretty basic, you know, that Tuvok's counseling her to be patient. Bolana's trying to affect escape, trying to find a way out her usual. I'm impatient and I'm angry thing. This kind of warms you up to some of the other scenes they have later, which overall I kind of liked. I thought there was good chemistry. I thought it was a strong interaction between two characters who normally do not share screen time. I mean, again, we're talking about two senior bridge crew officers. And now that I think about it, I don't think they've ever said more than five words to each other. So uh, this was much needed. And yeah, uh, Torres is doing her. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be the the captain of this situation. I'm not going to be the victim. She gets herself shocked in the force field a few times and whatnot, but you take what you're seeing here, you compare it to, um, what was the one where she threw the cup at Chakotay's ankle? And I think you've seen some real strong character growth here. She's fleshed the character out. I'm buying what she's putting down, and uh, it's all good in my book. I agree. And you're right to point out that this is probably the most screen time the two have had together uh, throughout the entirety of the show. And I kind of like that they took the time to build a relationship with the two of them through doing this. But uh, the next scene is the one where we start to get to the real fucking meat and potatoes, because that's when we meet the special guest star, not just the guest star, the special guest star for this episode. We get uh, the, the the alien that that saved Janeway, who we find out is named Calum, and he's played by Joel Gray, who is an Oscar award winning and Tony award winning actor, uh, probably most famous for his role in Cabaret. Uh, both he did both the stage and, and the movie version. I've only ever seen the movie version, but he plays the master of ceremonies, who's the character who's making a kind of all the commentary, the meta commentary throughout the course of the film. And he got an Oscar for that. And they got him on fucking Voyager, <laughs> which is well, punching way above their weight that they managed to convince him to do this. And holy fucking shit, do they get their fucking money's worth out of this guy? It's awesome. Yeah, so Janeway's uh, knocked out on the bed. She starts fluttering awake, and there's this uh, squirrely dude in there. And it doesn't take long before squirrely dude starts openly calling Janeway his daughter and how much he's missed her, and he's touching her face, and he's repeatedly, and when I say repeatedly, I mean at least five times, he's talking about making her soup. Soup guy was in the writing room on this one and soup guy was there in force. Like he's like, soup, soup, soup. This is what happens when you're writing too close to lunch. You know, you get food shit get in there too much. Got to got to get, get the sandwiches in there. Get everyone satiated and get back to writing before you do any more dialogue. Janeway's got this big green blob on her neck. Is that some sort of like bandaid? Yeah. It looked like a bandage to me. Cause I thought she got hit in the shoulder, but she's got this thing on her neck, but. I guess it's pretty cool. She's got some sort of dressing on there. But dude lays down the story through, oh, don't you remember? Your memory must be bad, whatever. But essentially, uh, this guy's wife wasn't down with the Mokra when they came to power. And she was uh, part of the resistance and wanted him to be a part of the resistance. But he wasn't uh, fully compliant. And somewhere along their ill-fated adventure, the wife got uh, captured by the Mokra and his daughter, who he's confused Janeway for, also suffered the same fate, leaving him alone on the streets. It's hard to discuss how effective uh, Joel Gray is at playing how crazy with grief this man is. Uh, it has to be seen to be understood, uh, but he plays it from his mannerisms to his cadence, uh, just to how he holds himself. Like he holds himself in a very squirrely kind of broken way. He exudes all of the fragility and damage that he's been through. And the pieces of his backstory that you just uh, laid out, they, they don't come out like in just one expository moment. 
Um, we get pieces of this through all of the scenes that he ends up having with Janeway and the hut that he calls home. And there's one scene, it's a little later on from this specific point, but we'll just cover kind of the overall uh, plot of, of these two together now. Um, there's one scene later on where he's talking about the the letters he's written his wife and he starts going into detail about one that he's he's written recently mind you he's not actually sent any of them the the show is not beating around the bush to make you think that his wife's probably dead and this is all very much a, a crazed morning performance thing that he does for his his own shattered mind the the camera just holds on him with Janeway out of focus in the background for I want to say three minutes while he starts to like talk about what he wrote and 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 how obviously important it is to him to have thought to do that and recount the day he had and all the grief that's on his face and how he says the lines uh, is just so powerful. It goes to show what you can do when you get someone with such genuine acting talent on your program, you can give them a character like this and any, any C list guy you picked up to do this as a, as a throwaway guest star might've fucked it up, but this guy takes it and just fucking goes the distance and you're just drawn in. You can't help but just go fuck. This guy is, he's had a rough go. The word to best describe this character. I think it's going to encapsulate him fully as tragic. And yeah. and it's a slow road to really get the big picture that we laid out and the whole way through, like you generally genuinely are hoping for this guy that it's gonna be a happy voyager ending, but you know that it's everything about this guy is gonna be tragedy to the very end. And it's it's a good watch the whole way through. So Janeway figures out, or I think he actually tells her that uh, the Mokra nabbed uh two of the people that she was with and she starts deciding that she's going to go have to do a solo prison break. I think it's worth pointing out as well, as far as like what Janeway, I think Janeway's really good in this episode, just both as a character. And then in terms of like the decisions they wrote her to make, which is sometimes her, where her character falls apart, not in the acting, but just that because she's the captain and they have to, Yeah, the script fails Janeway a lot. It doesn't fail her in this episode. It doesn't fail her in the decisions she makes and how she affects, you know, the solution to the plot. And then they very effectively allow her. She never tells like this guy off. There's there's a lot of empathy on her face as she starts to understand what this guy's story is. It's it's an expression that I, I said to Steve is like Janeway has a permanent. Oh, you poor fuck on her face dealing with this guy and he's kind she's kind of using him but also is sensitive to how she's using him and it's mm. it's very done in a very nuanced way that i appreciate it goes with along with a lot of this shit in this episode that it's nuanced and a little bit subtle and and not as in your face basic building blocks of 44 minutes of television shit which is nice the core of starfleet bleeds through very well in janeway's actions in this because I'm watching it and I'm saying to myself, well, this guy wants to take you in the prison and he's basically like enthralled with you and you are really shorthanded and you're talking about breaking into, you know, a a military police state installation solo without any, you know, Federation technology. Get all the help you can use this guy. He's a crazy dude. You know, it's, it's easy help. And every step of the way she's, I can't bring you into this. No, it's too dangerous for you. And I think there's this benevolent Starfleet philosophy guiding her actions. And it's one of those times where Starfleet's walking the walk and and talking the talk. And it doesn't seem stupid or patronizing. And it works well. And I enjoyed it. I completely agree with how you've uh, how you you put that, Peter. I putting it in that context now that. I hundred percent. I could not have put it better. And as you were noting, you know, she's she's seeing that she's got to make a move to get her people out of prison. She's doing the, the heroic captain thing, as of course she should. She starts to put together a plan. Meanwhile, on the ship, our villain has shown up on the vessel and lays down some Tannis level truth 
to Voyager that once again a lot of people fucking hate you in the Delta Quadrant. The the fucking next door for the Delta Quadrant has on to you. Like chapter and verse is their song and dance. Like, oh, you're from the Alpha Quadrant? Uh, some people think that's a lie too, you know. He doesn't make it clear in the way things often get signposted, but once again it's subtle. He's he suggests he wants a snitch. He wants them to snitch on the resistance people that have been helping him. And he dangles out there, if you snitch, I will give you your people and you can go. Chakotay kind of demurs and says, we'll, we'll think about that if you tell me, if you can get me in touch with my people down there. And he's like, but you should snitch. And they part ways without an agreement while New Jack uh, Neelix is sitting there like with a fucking nasty ass look on his face, you know, wanting to, to beat the guy with a baton. If I didn't know any better, I would say that New Jack Neelix is actually the Maquis umpire. <laughs> and he's got some sort of holographic costume on, so he looks like New Jack Neelix. And that's actually his smoldering gaze being cast on Augris. It was during this scene specifically. Made me kind of wonder, what if instead of Voyager being about a Federation vessel lost in the Delta Quadrant... It was a bunch of fucking Klingons who just weren't having anything <laughs> like, and were just pillaging and fucking dudes up from here back to, oh God, the Klingon homeworld is Kronos. Kronos. Kronos or uh, bust. And just, uh, you know, bungee cables stringing behind the vessels, carrying the, the bodies of everybody they had to roll to get out there. Uh, I think you could have a really good comedy series on your hands. Yeah, New Jack Neelix just laying down the hate. You've got this real problem. Nobody on the surface can communicate with Voyager. Uh, one of Janeway's, one of the big things she spends time doing is trying to get a hold of communications equipment. And of course, the Mokra being oppressive have taken communications equipment from the civilian population. The uh, sensor net or whatever running interference so so Voyager can't scan the surface and basically Voyager's kind of spinning its wheels like they don't have a good diplomatic option that's going to work doesn't seem like they're willing to snitch on the resistance movement here and Janeway's best bet you know with her time right now is trying to bust people out of jail so I think they start building a good tension of uh what are we going to do and I think some of the the crazy choices that get made later on you know they're they're doing a good job justifying right now I do agree that the pacing in the middle part of the episode is pretty good with how they're structuring what they're doing on the ship versus what's happening on the surface. The next scene is is Janeway trying to affect securing weapons. So they escape from a police sweep in the hovel and she's trying to meet up with her resistance contact uh, to try and, and communicate. And if not communicate, then figure out what she can do to break into the prison, which means, you know, guns. And there's an interesting kind of interlude where we have Calum uh, uh, essentially use a, a sort of full routine to trick the bootstrap thugs and Argus from arresting their uh, resistance contact. Um, it's uh, kind of an interesting insight that we get more context on later as to why it's effective, which I thought was very clever of them. Yeah. Point being that eventually uh, Janeway succeeds in in getting in touch with a, re a resistance contact and then setting up essentially a bargain for some guns where she's going to trade this artifact of of Caleb's daughter that has been given to her in exchange for him with Caleb's permission. I want to say that I called that whole uh, ruse where Caleb gets uh, the resistant leader off the hook. I, I put that in my notes as delightful hobo antics with hookers. <laughs> Yes, delightful hobo antics with hookers. That's a very good way of putting it. I called these girls hookers, just kind of tongue in cheek, but turns out I was right. There are hookers all yep. over this planet. <laughs> uh, they like oppression and fucking on this planet, apparently. Those are their uh, pastimes. Oh, I'm sorry. There's three pastimes because the next scene is Tuvok getting super tortured. <laughs> so okay, you know, next gen, Worf gets his ass kicked all the time. 50% of the time, Worf is getting thrown to try and, you know, add scale to how powerful some other Borg or Data or whatever is just picking him up and winging him around. The other half of the time, he's getting electrocuted, right? 
And man, by God, if Tuvok hasn't fallen into the wharf trap. Cold fire when his fucking blood gets boiled? When he gets microwaved. And before that... Yes. He gets dropped from like two stories up too in that in cold oh, fire as oh, well. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. He gets microwaved and is back on duty five minutes later only to be fucking telekinetically pinned to the ceiling, bleeding from the face, and then dropped. Before that, you had Tattoo where... Uh, I don't think he got roughed up, but oh, he got wet a little bit and they ran away. Tuvok gets his ass kicked nonstop in season two of Voyager. I'm starting to feel bad for him. Him and Balana both. I don't know if it's like a minority thing. <laughs> if they're just like, fuck it, <laughs> they're aliens, they can take it. But wow, it's a bad year for, for Tuvok. They figured out in DS9, they made war for real badass by letting him show what a badass he is by actually like countering threats. Hopefully they allow Tuvok a fucking break eventually from horrific bodily harm. Because the way they do the way they show it is that Bolana tries to escape by like turning the bench into a ladder to try and find a way up, and she hears a hor- horrifying cries from another room that clearly sound like Tuvok is being tortured. And later on, Tuvok gets brought back and he is seated on the floor. He is like staring straight ahead. He is concentrating on his breathing. He is saying nothing. It is in obvious agonized pain. And Balan is all like angry and pissed off and apologizing. And he's still saying nothing for the longest time. And eventually Balan is like, I just thought thought, uh, that uh, Vulcans could ignore pain. And then he like in between pained breaths explain like that's true up to a certain point. But eventually – you just have to endure the experience like it goes beyond the Vulcan capacity to shut that down. And the way that Tim Russ plays this discomfort is very effective in that this is a Vulcan who just got tortured and he is trying so hard not to complain. <laughs> you know, like he's he's trying not to bitch about it, but he wants to. How good would it have been if like they brought him back in and like blah, blah, like. Wow. So would you say like what they just put you through was like better or worse than um, the the caretaker girlfriend torturing us on the ceiling? <laughs> <laughs> like better or worse than your brain microwaved? Yeah, they did go through the, the telekinetic thing together. So they have that. They have that to I mean, bond over. They're pain buddies. Going back to uh, the main plot, I guess, with Janeway and Callum. Uh, Janeway, in a another sign that this episode was of unique quality, manages to flip the Trap Queen script <laughs> on its head. They're they're waiting for their guy to show up so they can make their their gun purchase to to have a gat so they can uh, break into the uh, the prison, and they get left hanging for several hours, and eventually the guy who has the tell, which is a black, a blue vest shows up. Janeway goes to interdict to make the trade looks down. She reverse uh, Shawshank redemptions and notices the shoes do not match what she expected. These are military boots. This guy's too put together to be a terrorist. So she, before she makes contact, she scoots away and says, that was a fucking trap. We're on our own. This whole terrorist who's the plant you know it, it kind of got me interested because the guy who they're kind of using as their um resistance contact it's the same guy i think that neelix was scoring the uh the warp core crack rock off of correct and he's he's real shitty with Callum. he's like heard stories about him he calls him a coward uh he says some stuff that really kind of shakes Callum up he's a dick and uh, you know, the whole episode, I'm wondering, like, is this guy really on the take in in thwarting the heroes from getting their way? And they never really flesh it out. I also want to point out what these aliens actually look like, because it's going to come up later. They're like regular human face and they kind of got like this weird Bajoran nose bridge thing. But there's like a hole in the bridge of their nose and they've got like piercings and stuff hanging off on there. They're very clearly not like smooth nose. Maybe that's why they sp- sprinkled other alien races into the marketplace and on the surface of this planet because like Janeway should be pretty easy to spot as not I don't think they even give this alien race a name but like not part of the native inhabitants 
the fact that she's just wandering around with her face uncovered the whole time and nobody seems to catch on, especially when she pulls her little uh, role play exercise later on is astounding. I did see that there were multiple alien races on this planet. So maybe the fact that she didn't have like weird face stuff wasn't the itself a huge tell. It's one of the things going back to what we originally started talking about. I wish there was a little bit more explanation to erase that potential hole mm-hmm. a little bit. Cause I agree like a little, a couple lines of dialogue about who the Mokra are could have erased the, why didn't anyone notice that Janeway didn't belong, but there's at least a suggestion as to why. And speaking of what Janeway's role play episode is, so I've distinctly remember the promo for this episode, which is very odd. They made a real point of focusing in on Janeway's honeypot expedition here as the selling point for the episode when they did like the UPN like 30 second spot. And they made it sound like this will be the episode where Janeway sluts it up for Voyager. This will be the episode where Janeway takes takes one from the team in her vagina for her ship. Like, they really, like, played the salacious angle up for this episode, which obviously was a dead, incorrect way to sell it. Um, but I remember seeing that at a formative age and, of course, like being, like, intrigued they talked about it heavily on Memory Alpha when I was reading the episode notes. And yeah, poor promotion, man. This is like not even 5% of the episode. And it's it's such a blink and it seemed like a real disservice. Janeway puts a solid effort in this entire thing and to focus on that was pretty shitty. So they get in as deep as they can into the prison until eventually uh, they find that there's two guards there standing there armed. And of course, they have absolutely nothing. Um, and yeah, jumping back to, uh, delightful hobo antics with hookers, Janeway's like, all right, well, you know, we got to close the distance on these guards. And then this like weird kind of, it's not a sewer, but it, it feels like a sewer. It's dungeony. The lights are dim. There's real harsh lighting. Um, like, you know, good shadows. And that's something I think that stands out in this episode too, is it's a strong art direction the whole way through. And I think they, again, world build with it very well. And they use the lighting to build up dramatic moments like this. So Jamie lets her hair down. She hikes her skirt up and she rolls up on these guys. Uh, the guard's like, uh, you know, you girls aren't supposed to be down here. And she's like, yeah, but, you know, it's cool, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's cool. So they go wander off and then she kicks the shit out of them. <laughs> I mean, to to Janeway's credit in the story, she uh, she definitely does a little sensual touching. She sells it, you know. Like, why don't we take go back and, uh, you know, I'll take a look at your alien penis and, and do things. <laughs> to it. Like, I mean, she, uh, as much as you can on, on network television, it works. It, they beat the guy up, take his gat, she bounces out, you know, blows the other guy away and uh, and gets herself into uh, uh, the prison. Although she makes a point of, of basically telling Callum, like, hey, really appreciate your help, but I'm saving your life by not letting you come on this the rest of this little – fucking adventure with me yeah go home he does steal a knife though which is important i do want to point out the guns that she steals i'm not joking those are the same guns that the uh the candy corn police use in candy corn tragedy it's a terrible memory i choose not to to remember that (laughs) being connected with this quality episode of television i'll point out that janeway is an expert at hacking alien high security technology yeah yeah, like immediately. Uh, okay. Yes. What well, uh, again? That science background. Few nitpicky things. A few nitpicky things. Here. And they're super minor. I mean, it's it's. These are the rules of science fiction. You always know how to fiddle with the door panels. Shooting the door panel always does the opposite of what the door is currently. Tuvok and oh yeah, Tuvok and Balana. They how do, how do they escape? Yeah, Janeway blows like a control panel for all of the electricity and all of the uh, the cages basically. And so as soon as that comes down, uh, Balana starts to try to overpower the guard that's there and she's starting to fail. And then Tuvok, like a fucking G, <laughs> comes up behind, neck pitches the guy, and then as he falls down, takes his gun out of his, his holster. I don't know. I'm not. I'm give, giving no fucks for what has happened to him yet again. Just immediately 
just grabs the guy, takes his gun. He's not give a shit. Yeah, he's got some anger to start working through in his own Vulcan way. They stumble around. They meet up with Janeway, almost shoot each other. You know, classic uh, dark dungeon random encounter. They actually find uh, the dude who is their informant rolling around down there for some fucking reason. And that's why I'm still kind of like, was this dude really the rap? But they don't, they don't establish it one way or the other. But eventually, uh, Augris, who, what was this, the third magistrate or something? I mean, he's got to be a pretty important dude if he's like answering phone calls to the planet, right? Yeah, yeah, you would assume that. He's been around for a while. And this guy's, I think, one of the the true faces of oppression for these Mokra. They ambush him. And, uh, you know, the jig's up. And now instead of doing sweeps through the ghetto trying to find Janeway, there's everybody he could have wanted wrapped up with a nice bow. And and that's going to be that. And it's during this exchange here that he mentions that uh, Callum, you know, is kind of the, the village idiot at this point. That his wife has been dead. His daughter has been dead for decades at this point. Uh, every couple of years, he tries to make a attack run on the the prison to varying degrees, you know, according to how much they feel like fucking with him at that particular moment. And ultimately, he always gets booted out of prison on his ass with pie on his face to serve as a, you know, a, a public example of uh, the Mokra's dominance and that, you know, they're there to stay and and that's that. Deal with it. It's a it's a very satisfying yet expected conclusion to what we have learned about uh, a Callum up to this point. You know, it's definitely the sad ending, but you expected it. The wife died 12 years ago. The daughter died trying to sneak into the prison. All of this is just his broken mind trying to deal with all of this trauma that has happened to him. And it all is legitimately his fault. His wife got captured in a Mokra raid because she stuck around to wait for him when he agreed to help, only he no-showed because he was a pussy. She got scooped up and uh, put in jail, and his daughter joined the resistance specifically to break her mother out, and uh, she died in the process. So this dude, this is the fall of the House of Usher, right? Like, all of this tragedy, it's even worse than you really expected it to be. And I think to a certain point, Augris feels bad for the guy. Like, I mean, they could have killed him a long time ago and yeah, it's shitty to, you know, let this guy basically beat his head against the wall. But, you know, he acknowledges like this is a tragic situation. And I think Augurus is a good character because he's not evil for the sake of evil. I think he believes in whatever order he's trying to impose and, you know, would rather see a, a lawful law abiding planet. And it's just, it's not jiving and he's not understanding it, but yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. He's more lawful evil yeah. than, and chaotic sure. evil so it, it put in context the earlier scene where he was acting the hobo antics in front of him and why argus let it you slide know, unexpectedly let it slide and then played along yeah this is the relationship that they have due to what has happened to him so that all came together nicely what didn't come together nicely was the firefight at the end so Voyager has been affecting to different levels of ability some way to try and find everybody. They wind up drawing aggro from the planet and they start shooting at him. Tom decides to go to the prison himself because he sees they see all of the activity and Tom sees a prison break, knows a prison break when he sees one. <laughs> so he wants to get down there and help. They're trying to get him out of there and it's a little unclear as to how this is going to wrap up. And essentially what happens is that Caleb makes a bum rush for uh, Argus while everyone's kind of in the middle of a fist fight that has broken out and stabs Argus in the chest. Caleb gets shot twice, obviously going to be fatal for him. And Argus dies. And then all of his goons just walk away. <laughs> That's how it happens. Like, the two guys literally just like, huh, our boss is dead. Time to go. Like, that's like, what? What? Why are you going? Why are you? Where are you going? What? What are you? You had the upper hand. You were going to win the fight, but now you're just gone. Why did you do that? They ducked back behind the corner. I don't know. It gave me like this uh, Boba Fett feel because they got, you know, the, the bondage helmets on and they're just like, 
mm, fuck this and they they step up that's why i kind of think like the mokra you know i said he was one of the the more visible faces of evil you know maybe in this world it's it's a concentrated few who are really pushing this totalitarian agenda and maybe you know these guys who are the bondage cops the the mokra at large they're not feeling it either and maybe they're sympathetic to the population and seeing him dies you know it's like maybe this whole thing might start falling apart which of the west died and so all of the soldiers <laughs> are like oh you're in charge now the whole episode doesn't matter up to this point because you're not going to remember anything about this episode in you know 3 seasons from now except for this closeout scene uh you know you got our our, our crazy old dad on the floor he's been shot uh, and he is keyed up all the stuff, all the truth that Augers had been speaking about his wife dying, his daughter dying, it all being his fault. Like this guy's in the middle of some like PTSD shit. Janeway crouches down as the angel of mercy at this place and finally shoulders the role of, you know, his daughter and starts basically saying, hey, don't listen to him. He was lying. Uh, you know, mom's fine. I'm fine. You did it. You saved the day. You finally saved everybody. I forgive you. Mom forgives you and, and you know, gives this guy the, the hero send off. And you see the weight lifted off this guy's chest. And it's a very predictable thing that's going to happen. You know, I would say you saw this scene coming from, you know, the moment he reveals that he thinks he's Janeway's daughter. And even knowing that it, it doesn't take any of the weight off of this scene. Like it was a very emotional. I, I thought it was emotional. It, it choked me up legit. You are correct. It was predictable that this would happen. And you are also correct that it is still remains effective. And it remains effective because the way Kate Mulgrew goes for it is perfect. I mean, there's no hesitation. She comes down and she is like, hey, no, like she embodies the role. Like, we really, you know, you saved us, dad. You did a great job. We forgive you. There's there's no like moment where it looks like she's not being authentically interested in making sure that he believes what she is telling him, that it is important to her that she embodies the role to their best of her ability because this man's about to die and he deserves that much. And that comes through very nicely which is why it remains legitimately moving despite the fact you had to know it was going to happen. I want to do another side-by-side -side comparison from early Voyager to right now. Take, <laughs> take Janeway's capacity to give a fuck. All right. <laughs> Go back to episode two or three when uh, Chakotay tries indoctrinating her into the spirit animal cult. Oh, yes. And he starts giving her the sales pitch and she's like, oh, wow. What is this interesting thing? Oh, Chakotay, I'm so intrigued. And it's it seems like the most sarcastic I'm fucking with you moment when she's supposed to legitimately give a fuck. And then contrast it to now where it's I'm going to buy into your fantasy and I'm going to send you off to the next life with the most care and intent that I've put into any moment in this show uh, ever and and sell you off so you can die a happy man at peace with himself. And uh, it's a night and day difference. Uh, yeah, it hit me with some real emotion, man. It was it was a very strong ending. Uh, it's a very simple episode. You know, if we, we jump back over the past couple, two, three episodes, really good science fiction. I wouldn't really classify anything that went on here as science fiction. I would say it's just a good story about characters in a classic Don Quixote situation. And it works. And it could have been Star Trek or it could have been, you know, swords and sorcery fantasy. And the acting holds up and and, and it moves you. And, and and that's why I'm saying this is, is strong. And it's cool to see Voyager be able to do finally, you know, sci-fi, right? And finally drama, right? And get results like this. I completely agree uh, on everything you just said uh, in terms of the show being relatively simple. We had no cast. We had no doctor. We had a minimal of they erased the sci-fi MacGuffin stuff in the 
before the first act was even I over. I loved it. I loved it. And so, it was effective too. It was because it told you why they were in the situation to begin with, resolved that. It's like, okay, now let's get to the important stuff. It's, I think, how you exactly you put it, and that's the right way to put it. I have a question for you, though, Peter, and uh, we can edit this out if ultimately you don't want to answer this question. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that ending was effective emotionally for you because you're a man with a wife and a daughter? It's hard to say. Maybe it affected me more than it would have. I think it would have been an effective ending on me regardless. I think I'm a sucker for a tragic death and somebody who had been reserved before opening up and embracing some a lie, a, a fundamental violation of their principle as a as a final act of mercy on someone who had been a big part of that story. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, you know, the fact I've got a little girl now and, you know, I can sympathize with this guy certainly to a larger extent was a was a big part of that. I like putting that kind of thing in context just because as we're rewatching, I mean, rewatching the show 23 years later and I'm I'm really glad I'm doing this. I mean, obviously right now because we got to watch three good episodes in a row, but like hmm. it puts the show in much different context watching it now than when I watched it when I was a teenager. Because I remember watching this episode when I was a teenager because the, the fucking promo talked me into doing it. And uh, I, I was not <laughs> I was not nearly as excited by this. Like, I didn't really I didn't recall enjoying this episode at all. What the fuck? I came here for hookers and instead I got a guy dying tragically on the floor. So watching it now, I'm an adult. I'm married. I don't have uh, children like you do. But at the same time, I can. I'm mature enough to understand and appreciate deep emotional storytelling. And I loved it. And the context where someone comes in and sees this can alter over the course of, of time. It can be the same person later. They've gone through different things in their lives. And suddenly what appeals to them is art is, is going to be different. So uh, it's my takeaway from it. Great episode. Loved it. Uh, and I knew you were about to say something, man. I didn't want to cut you off. Well, Two things, and you just prompted me into another thing. This is essentially, um, this is, I think, going to have to be Janeway's inner light episode, right? Living a life of someone else and having to carry the emotional baggage of knowing that thing is dead now as she moves forward. Isn't that really the necklace she's pawing at at the the final episode? Not, you know, Picard's Renathic and Flute? Yeah, I mean, it's a little, nothing's ever going to touch inner light in terms of... That emotional impact, but I'd say this is a pretty close uh, facsimile for Janeway. I assume she doesn't touch any of this stuff ever again in the in the series. Yeah, not that I remember, unfortunately. Um, so this episode was initially designed around uh, the Mokra. We're going to be Kazan, I believe, and Janeway's role was supposed to be uh, Belana Torres. Huh. I think I'm glad that this is Janeway rather than Bellana. I think they gave Bellana good screen time, but Janeway needed this, I think. I'm 50-50. I think this was an excellent Janeway episode, and I think Kate Mulgrew knocked it out of the park. I don't know if uh, Roxanne Dawson as Torres would have been able to do it, but I do think that this specifically because of the daddy issues and specifically because of the, the family elements Torres needs to be fleshed out more. She's good scene to scene, and I think she's holding up her end of uh, of whatever she's, you know, dialogue uh, trees she's in, but she needs some emotional, she needs something more than the Chakotay sex dream. And, and, and again, while I'm glad that Janeway got it, I think this would have been a really good episode to start fleshing her off and, uh, sorry, fleshing her out and, and, and cutting some deeper layers here. I agree. Clearly, she gets a lot more development as the years go on. A lot happens with her. So I guess those days are coming. Because I know that, I appreciate that they took the time to do this one with Janeway instead. So, But let's all take a moment and mourn the true loss here. Not that we won't have uh, the uh, an actor the quality of uh, Joel Gray on the show again. Not that this could have been a Bolana episode. Let us mourn for what could have been with New Jack Neelix, <laughs> who could have been the best character on this show. Unfortunately, I don't think we see his like ever again. That's sad. That's uh, New Jack Neelix is, is true. 
I mean, that's going to have to be the episode yeah, title yeah. on this one. 100% obviously. done. <laughs> done. Here's an episode about uh, Janeway being confused. As, no, the title's New Jack Neelix. All right, man. You got anything else to say about this one? Or is it time to move on? Yeah, uh, you know, this has been uh, this has been a delightful respite. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's coming to a crashing halt next week. What's the next episode? Season two, episode 13, Prototype. And in this picture of Prototype, we see the warp core. Uh, we see what looks like a shitty silver mask dude laying on the ground. And there's Belana Torres grabbing her forearm hand outstretched like she's about to put the iron claw on this dude's stomach and some pro wrestling shit. Um, Voyager finds an automated life form adrift in space. When Belana Torres reactivates it, the unit realizes she may be able to build more. Not willing to say if it was good or not. It was definitely interesting, though. So I'll take interesting. We'll, Man, look, we'll see what if happens. It's, if it's between Voyager bad and world building Starfleet fleshing out interesting, I'll take it. Do we want to put uh, bets on who the pooper is going to be on this? Next? I, I think we skipped over any sort of uh, naysaying on this one, right? Or you know what? Make I, I, I would like to. I would like to state for the record that until such time as we get another pooper handed to us, mm-hmm. let's not wish it upon ourselves these moments must be they they must be treasured peter and so we've had three hits in a row we look like we might have at least a foul ball you know we'll make contact on the next episode i don't know if it's gonna stay in play or what let's uh do we need to embrace this potential alternate reality and when there's actually good episodes do the intro as an excellent voyage instead of a hateful trek. No, no, it's, uh, it's God, you screwed it up again <laughs> for an hour and 13 minutes into this podcast. And you still don't, I'm just I, like, I, you I know, don't... it's going to be a hateful voyage. Cause it's going to be my hate for you, Peter. It's gonna be my undying hatred for you. I hate you. Yeah. Well, they, me hey. and the alternate reality version of me, we hate you. Let's go ahead and close this one out. We got uh, the father who abandoned his wife in the secret meeting, uh, you know, shirking his duty to overthrow the Mokra. And uh, because of his indecision, losing not only his wife, uh, but ultimately his daughter to take the to the limit where he breaks and uh, would soon become ultimately the uh, hand of death against the man who had wronged him. Rule of Acquisition 98, every man has his price. Yeah, and has to pay it. Mm-hmm. Great episode of Star Trek. Watch it. That's what I got to say. Yeah. Uh, if, we, if we didn't talk enough about Calum, uh, Joel Gray's performance, it's because you just have to watch it. So on that note, uh, this has been V'ger Please, a temporarily not hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. Uh, my name is Joseph. Uh, I'm Peter wishing new Jack Neelix safe travels to whatever beyond he has gone to. And uh, safe travels to you, our listener as well. Please continue to like subscribe and share this podcast. We want nothing from you except uh, your listenership. And we appreciate all new people who have come along recently. So we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.